Welcome to The Disaster Project, a podcast about everything disaster. I'm your host, Dr. Larissa Unruh. Let me tell you a little secret. There are not a ton of women in the disaster preparedness and response field, and even fewer that hold high-level positions. Because of this, I believe that it is of the utmost importance to highlight women who are changing the face of how the U.S. manages disasters. So who could be a better role model than the actual Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, or ASPR, for the entire United States, Assistant Secretary Don O'Connell? Okay, but what does this position do? Well, she is the advisor to the HHS Secretary on all things related to medical and public health preparedness and response. A vast job. For a little perspective, the 2023 ASPR presidential budget request was $4.3 billion, with a B, dollars. Small price to pay for disaster preparedness in the U.S. You may be asking, what is the organization ASPR? Okay, it does get a little confusing because the ASPR, or Assistant Secretary, is the position, while ASPR, or the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response, is the federal government organization under HHS that she heads. And it is the organization responsible for medical and public health preparedness, response, and recovery for natural and man-made disasters in the U.S. It partners with organizations like FEMA and the CDC. The scope of ASPR is so broad that it's hard to encapsulate it here. There are a total of eight offices that fall under the jurisdiction of ASPR. They include the immediate office of the ASPR, the Office of Administration, the Office of Preparedness, the Office of Response, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA, the Office of Industrial-Based Management and Supply Chain, the Strategic National Stockpile, and HHS Coordination Operation and Response Element. You might say, well, that doesn't really impact me. And oh, you would be wrong. Have you ever been to a hospital, received a vaccine, attended a large sporting event? Have you ever heard of COVID? If so, then you have probably inadvertently enjoyed the work of ASPR. For a little background on today's guest, Assistant Secretary Don O'Connell is a lawyer by training who, prior to becoming the ASPR, held positions like the director of the U.S. Office for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation. She also served as a senior counselor to Secretary Sylvia Burwell and deputy chief of staff to Secretary Sibelius at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. In those roles, she consistently provided high-level leadership towards the goal of improving disaster preparedness and response. Without any further introduction, let's meet Assistant Secretary Don O'Connell. Assistant Secretary O'Connell, I am so excited to have you on The Disaster Project. Thank you so much for being here. Let's start off with how you got interested in disaster preparedness and response. Of course. Thank you. Um, Thanks so much for having me. This is terrific to have this conversation. So I was a young staffer on the Hill. I was educated as a lawyer and um, was a young staffer on the Hill being a young lawyer when September 11th happened. And I was actually in the Capitol complex on that day. Got moved out, evacuated first to the sidewalk outside of our house office building where we listened to radios. So this tells you what what, this is well before iPhones and your ability to track news. And someone had a handheld television. And so we gathered around. And then slowly over the course of that morning, 
as we were seeing the smoke rise from what we didn't know at the time was the Pentagon having been hit. We were moved out of, you know, from that perimeter to a farther perimeter to a farther perimeter and eventually made it to one of my colleagues' apartments. Uh, She had an apartment on the hill and we all gathered there at this point around the TV and we were able to see that the towers had fallen and that that was the Pentagon. But Witnessing that sort of both the unknowing what was happening and trying to get as much information as we could as quickly as we could to make sure that we were safe and then getting to that apartment, trying to find a place where we could order lunch and sandwiches in so we could eat after being on the street all morning and then reaching out to family and friends and not being able to get through. The switchboards were all full made me realize how important a good response coordination is, you know, how important it is for responders to be able to work carefully and closely with people, to be able to give communication as it's happening, and to know what it felt like to have been responded to, you know, to be part of that, to have been moved out of that perimeter. So that was um, one of my first experiences with, and, and, you know, probably many people in Washington, D.C.'s real firsthand experience was something extraordinarily tragic. And then a couple of years later, my family's from New Orleans. So a couple of years later, Hurricane Katrina hit. And we were watching that from the safety of our house in, in, in D.C. But I had aunts and uncles, cousins who needed to evacuate And I had one great aunt who was in a nursing home, and we were tracking her very, very carefully, and they moved her out, and then we couldn't find her for a while. And we're eventually able to reunite on a hangar in Memphis. And so they'd evacuated her nursing home, brought her to that hangar, and then her family was able to to get her and move her into a nursing home in Memphis. And she lived out her days in Memphis as a result. But experiencing that as a family member from afar... And seeing how important our first responders were, being able to get there to communicate with family, to save someone who was medically impaired at that point and needing to rely on them was really important. So those were two very important experiences in my life coming up as I was thinking about my career path, as I was a young lawyer on the Hill at that time working on various issues, seeing how important it was for there to be strong communication, strong response capability really hit home. And so I became very interested in that. Well, I was on the Hill from 1997 after law school and then through 2010. The congressman I was working for lost re-election in 2010. Obama was president at that time and was asked to join HHS as deputy chief of staff. So came into HHS as deputy chief of staff. And that was a time that the ACA was so important policy-wise to this department. It was in the process of being passed and then the early stages of implementation were happening. So, so many of our political appointees that were coming to work for HHS, were really focused on wanting to work on the ACA. Well, I had had that experience with September 11th and with Katrina and really was interested in disaster preparedness and response. And so there was a whole element of our department where a lot of people were not paying close attention and we really needed someone to be involved, to be engaged in the secretary's office on those issues. And so that was an opportunity for me to sit and work very closely on behalf of the secretary with the secretary on some of these issues and and become familiar with the ASPR organization. So I was really pleased to be invited back in the Biden administration to lead ASPR. What is the history of ASPR as an organization? 
Well, that's one of the things that, you know, that, that I feel particularly close to the Asper organization as an ideal because it, it was after the Hurricane Katrina response and some of the delays that occurred on the federal level that the administration, in partnership with Congress, thought we needed to have public health emergency preparedness and response element within HHS stood up as what was at the time a staff division. So our authorizing language, the Pandemics and All Hazards Preparedness Act, was passed in 2006, which is what authorized Asper, and that was when we got started. So we got started really in this all-hazards way, and then we were able to add some of the really important capabilities that have come to us over the course of the pandemic just in these last several years. What is Asper's mission? It's to prepare the nation for public health emergencies, to help the nation respond to public health emergencies, and to help the nation recover from public health emergencies. And I'm saying public health emergencies, but disasters and, you know, either natural or human-made are uh, part of that definition as well. All hazards. What goes into accomplishing that mission? We do a lot of things. So I mentioned some of the early programs that we have that, you know, help bring that, including BARDA, which is the Biomedical Advanced Research Authority, and their responsibility is the advanced research and development of countermeasures. And so that means vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics, anything that we might need to fight any of the potential threats that we see out there. And we've seen a lot of that work, you know, just in these last three years with COVID. They were critical in Operation Warp Speed. They were part of the research team along with NIH to get those vaccines and therapies moving as quickly as they did. So BARD is one piece of it. We got the strategic national stockpile from CDC in 2018. So we actually have the stockpile of countermeasures. So BARDA contributes to the advanced research and development procurement manufacturer. The stockpile then stockpiles and makes sure states and others have access to these countermeasures should a threat occur. We also, over the course of the pandemic, have taken on supply chain concerns. You know, it's always been important to us as an emergency response element to be able to to access supplies that we need when we need them. So the supply chain's always been important to us. But what we saw happening in March 2020, when everyone needed the exact same things at the exact same time, and we couldn't find them because they were manufactured somewhere else, Congress gave us a significant amount of money to invest in expanding the domestic base so we could have these things manufactured here in the U.S. moving forward. Things like masks, gloves, gowns. So we've been in, involved in that, as well as we put in this landscape tool called the Supply Chain Control Tower, which allows us to have visibility into the supply chain and see the pinches as they're happening, to be able to get ahead of them with some of our investments. So that's been another one of the components. And if I, I would be remiss if I didn't also mention we have the National Disaster Medical System, or NDMS as we call them. There are teams of clinicians that get deployed into any of the disasters or public health emergencies we're responding to. So that's another critical component of our response. How does ASPR coordinate with other federal organizations on preparedness and response issues, like with FEMA or the CDC? So the pop-up bill that I mentioned that authorized us, authorized us as the principal advisor to the Secretary for Public Health Emergencies and Response. So as the principal coordinator within the department, my role is to make sure that CDC, FDA, NIH, all of the components that are involved in any of our preparedness and response efforts are sitting around the same table, pulling together in the same direction. So we do that coordination piece. There's no daylight between CDC and us. There's no daylight between NIH, FDA, and us. Really important. But I also play a critical coordination role with our external partners as well. And FEMA, of course, is among them. When we were seeing the increase in cases for the Delta surge, you'll recall in the the summer of 2021, 
Deanne Criswell, who's head of FEMA, and I would meet weekly just to make sure that we were seeing it the same way and deploying resources against the same problems. So very important to have a strong relationship with our FEMA colleagues. What do you consider the most pressing challenge facing emergency preparedness and response today? Someone will always say funding. It's really sexy to invest in emergency preparedness and response during a pandemic. It's less sexy to keep doing it when you're turning to the preparedness pieces. So one of the big things I have to do is remind people that we were able to move out so quickly with vaccines against this coronavirus because we'd already been doing research on coronaviruses because of SARS and MERS, and that that investment early allowed us to move out quickly, and that we've got other viral families, not just coronaviruses, that we can can invest in now if we're given the funding to begin to develop prototypes, the prototype vaccine, a prototype diagnostic, a prototype therapeutic that we can put on a library shelf. And should that virus hit us in any form, we can pull it off and be able to jumpstart our manufacturing and work against it very quickly. So funding, we need funding to be able to do that. The other thing that really worries me is that I'm preparing for last year's crisis. And I think that's one of the things that most responders are always checking themselves against. Are we thinking about what's coming next and not not just what happened to us? And so making sure the tools I have are as flexible as possible. So even if we're planning against 20 different material threats that Department of Homeland Security gives us, that 21st one, that one that no one saw and no one predicted, that I still have tools that I can quickly pivot to use against those. How does ASPR monitor and respond to disasters? Well, we have, and we should make sure that before you leave, you have a chance to see the Secretary's Operations Center. It's a place that's 24-7. We have watch officers who are constantly surveying the scene, making sure that anything that's happening out there in the world, we're watching and tracking. And if they begin to see a blip or some sort of disaster emerge or potentially pandemic outbreak happening, that we have knowledge of it early and that we're all coordinated. So we have a watch an entire watch center that keeps up with that. So that's one of the ways that we monitor. The other thing that we do is we're in very close contact with CDC. They do a significant amount of forecasting. They just set up a new forecasting center. So we feed into that with what we're seeing in the SOC and make sure that it's coordinating with anything that they're tracking out in the world as well. So we have as much information to glean as possible. How do you ensure that vulnerable populations like the elderly or disabled or low-income individuals are adequately supported during a disaster? Well, this is one of the critical things. You know, we're not strong unless everybody's responded responded to and prepared for, you know, over the course of our work. A couple of things. The Biden-Harris administration, to their credit, has made access a really key cornerstone to the COVID response. When we first came in and started doing this work as part of the administration, we were told in no uncertain terms that we have to make sure that the tools that we had were available to anyone who needed it whenever they needed it. And I thought that was a wonderful way to set the example at the tippy top of this administration, how important it was to reach all communities. So we do the same. We just put out our five-year strategic plan, which will cover 2022 through 2026, 27, you could, uh, public math in five years. But anyway, through 2026, Zach is telling me, um, in which one of the cornerstones is leaving nobody behind, making sure that we're accounting for everybody. And one of the ways we do this is we have three advisory committees that we sit and meet with. These are experts in their fields. We have an advisory committee on disasters and senior citizens. We have an advisory committee on disasters and people with disabilities. And we have advisory committees on people, uh, on children. So we're sure that these vulnerable communities, vulnerable populations are accounted for in our thinking as we move forward. And we're really great 
grateful for their advice on how we build them into all of our response plans. Can you discuss any innovative strategies or programs that ASPR is currently implementing to improve disaster preparedness and response? Well, one of the most exciting things, of course, is in BARDA, where they're currently doing all of the advanced research and development for various countermeasures, which includes pushing platforms for various vaccines. For example, a pandemic flu is something that we're always worried about. In fact, if you'd have asked any expert in 2018 what the next pandemic was going to be, it was going to be a flu. Turned out it was a coronavirus, but we were all bracing that we were going to see a highly virulent flu strain come through. So that means one will be coming. So one of the things that Asper has been investing in the BARDA is the patch where you actually can administer a vaccine through a patch instead of a needle injection. And you can see how important that is when so many of our vaccines had to be stored at a certain cold chain, or as you're thinking about administering it around the world, needing to have it delivered in countries that might not have the storage capacity, either for cold chain or for regular storage shelves, to be able to put it in a patch and stick it on your arm. And for anyone out there who's actually afraid of needles, that actually is a very, very good way to get the protection that you need without having to put up with the needle. So we're looking at that sort of innovation right now and others like it. That's so interesting. I had not even heard that that was even an option or like being thought about. So it'd be kind of like a nicotine patch. Yep. Wow. Little micro needles. And we're doing it. And the reason why I mentioned the flu is we're doing it as part of our flu program. But if it is successful as a flu patch, then we would certainly try to use that technology against other things. What advice would you give to communities who want to be better prepared for disasters? How can they work with Asper to improve their readiness? Well, this is one of the most important things because we can sit up in Washington, D.C. all day long and talk about how prepared we are. But unless our communities and our states and our local governments are prepared, we're going to still be where we we were uh, three or four years ago prior to the pandemic, prior to all these investments and the capabilities that we have. So I would encourage a few things. We've got regional emergency coordinators in every state, part of our regional outreach to make sure that we have communication and regular contact with state and local leaders so they know what ASPR has. They know the resources we can make available. Um, So would encourage if if there's a state or local leader who's not aware of their regional emergency coordinator to reach out to us. We'll make sure that you're connected on the ground with who knows your state and who knows your community. I would also encourage the same with our strategic national stockpile. I think one of the things that was so challenging in March 2020 was so many states didn't know what was in the stockpile and didn't know how to access it. So the stockpile right now is doing a bit of a roadshow, reaching out, having regional meetings across the country to make sure local leaders know how to access it moving forward. But that might not be enough. If there's someone out there who still isn't sure how to do that, reach out to us and we'll connect you. And then one final thing I would recommend is to practice. We practice all the time. I have senior leader retreats every six weeks. And I've used two of those senior leader retreats to exercise various scenarios. We did a a radiological nuclear scenario a couple of retreats ago just to make sure that everybody around the table knows what their role is in that first day of a response, second day of a response, third day of a response. The worst thing that can happen is that you're learning on the fly. Now, I'll be clear, every response is different. You know, every tragedy comes in a different way. They're not all the same. But if you know what your role is and what you need to do in your first hour, first three hours, first day, then you're halfway to having a successful response and arresting whatever the damage is going to be. So strongly encourage our state and local leaders to practice. Don't do this for the first time in the middle of an emergency. What do you see as the future of emergency preparedness and response? And how do you see ASPR evolving to meet those changing needs? 
Well, you know, it's a couple of things. It's, it is making sure that states and local governments know how to do this, too. You know, the federal government certainly has a role to play, and we want to play it well. But it's important that states and local governments also know where they begin and where they end and what their responsibilities are on the ground, and that we know where they begin and end. And so continuing to have that relationship is important. You know, we've had conversations with states that want to have their own stockpiles and what they should have in their stockpile and how they should do that. And we've had conversations with states that don't want their own stockpiles. They don't want the extra PPE laying around in times that they don't need it. They don't want to deal with expiring PPE, but making sure that we've got that good communication and that states are empowered to do what they need to do and the federal government can support that is really important moving forward. The next thing that I think is important for the future of response is the all hazards, all threats, threat agnostic approach. One of the things that BART has been doing is looking looking at countermeasures that work against symptoms, not necessarily causes. So we can apply if you have the symptom, whether it's from a radiological or nuclear event or a chemical or biological event, if you have that symptom, we will have the countermeasure. Instead of organizing our countermeasures for bio, for chem, for rad nuke, we're going to organize our countermeasures for blood loss, acute pain, you know, whatever the various symptoms are to be sure that no matter what the cause, we will have some sort of solution and protection for that. Changing the topic just a little bit, I noticed that many of the top leadership positions in your office are held by women, which I love. This seems a little bit unusual for government organizations and maybe especially unusual for disaster work. What has been your experience as a woman working in the disaster field? Well, you know, one of the things that I think is most important is that when you're in this field that you work hard, put your head down and get your job done well. And so that's been really what I've been focused on over the course of my career is making sure that people know they can count on me to get the work done that needs to be done. But I am thrilled that we're starting to see more women in this field. I think that is a terrific advancement. One of the things that's important to us is that we have an organization that looks like the country that we serve. And you and I know the country that we serve, I think, has more women or close to. And so very important that our leadership represent that in a lot of ways. But one of the things that I want to be clear about is that the best people for the jobs are currently doing the jobs. They just so happen to be women, and that's a terrific thing, I think, as we're seeing the evolution of, it, of disaster and preparedness response work. But here, you know, I have to say we've got a super strong team, and I'm lucky to have the people around me that I do. We're also seeing women lead other big organizations in this space. You'll see Deanne Criswell, who's head of FEMA, Rochelle Walensky, who's head of CDC. So women are certainly stepping up and being recognized for the work they've always done. What kinds of challenges have you faced as a woman in government? Well, HHS is a lovely place to work if you're a, a woman. For whatever reason, we tend to have a lot of female leaders, at least in the administrations that I've been a part of, which is absolutely terrific. And so in that regard, I haven't, as a woman in particular in this space, have not encountered much difficulty. I always think it's really important that we support each other. You know, that myth that women tear each other down. I'd like to defy that every turn I can. And what's most important, again, as I said, is that people do their work and do it well. And if you do your work and do it well, you will, uh, you know, emerge in the space that you're intended to be. And usually that's a leader. And this department has really recognized people that are strong leaders, and many of them just happen to be women. So I think that's been just a wonderful way that the federal government models what we'd like to see happen in other places. What advice would you give to women interested in government jobs or who want to become leaders in the field? Well, work hard, do your job well, and people will notice it. Take care of each other. 
you know, it's really important that as you're doing this work and as you're thinking about, you know, contributing to your country in this way, that you have a group of people that you enjoy working with and that you support each other, that you can bounce ideas off of and that you can grow with. And I think finding those colleagues and nurturing those relationships is really important because the work is hard. It doesn't stop. Many people that I've worked with, so I came in in January 2021, but many people here in in Asper have been working around the clock since the very beginning of the pandemic and some even before then for other reasons. The work will not end. There will always be work. Do it well. Look out for each other. And uh, the recognition will come. The opportunity to participate in higher levels will come if you do those things. Is there anything else that we should know about Asper that we haven't already covered? Well, I'm really excited about where we're taking Asper. You know, as we mentioned, Asper was founded in 2006, um, and here we are now in 2023, and we've seen a lot of change. You know, I've, I've joked and with the Oscar winner, everything, everywhere, all at once, has felt a little bit like the work that we've done in these last couple of months. This summer, the secretary made us an operating division. So when I talked about the Papa law that authorized us, they initially made us a staff division, which was a different, it means we sat in the office of the secretary. Now, uh, in recognition of all the work that Asper's done and over the pandemic, all the responsibility we've taken on, the secretary made us our, our own agency, just like CDC, FDA, NIH. Really important that the teams that have been working so hard for all these years get recognized in that way. It also lets me build the capabilities I need. You know, when you're part of the office of the secretary, as we were before, I would have to use the office of the secretary's HR components, contracting components, and they're completely fine for, you know, a staff division that's not in the middle of an emergency, not running a sprint. But for Asper, we really need some capabilities that we can build ourselves that meet our moment and our mission, and becoming an operating division will let us do that. So as we became an operating division, we then went through a reorganization where uh, we got the strategic national stockpile, as I mentioned, from CDC in 2018. It now shows up as its own standalone office within Asper. We also took on the operations and logistical coordination pieces of Operation Warp Speed. That now shows up in our organization as HCORE. And that supply chain work I talked about, that's always been so important to us, but we never really, you know, had it showing up in our organization in a meaningful way is now its own office within Asper. So I'm really pleased that Asper's grown in this way. You know, I've said many times it would be malpractice if we were the same organization now that we were three years ago when the pandemic started. You know, we've got to grow and show some institutional awareness of the work that we've taken on to make sure that we can be strong for whatever comes next. So those are the reasons why I'm so excited about where Asper is going and what we're doing moving forward. Would you say that COVID was actually one of the major factors that caused Asper to expand? I would say so. So we have always had BARDA and NDMS as really programmatic, operational, you know, and in the, in these agencies within HHS tend to have those large nationwide programs that they run. CMS runs Medicare and Medicaid. FDA does all the food inspection and all the regulation. We have always had BARDA, which is a critical, renowned research organization within the federal government. Um, and we had NDMS, which were these clinicians that go out and respond to hurricanes and other disasters. But really, 2018, when we got the Strategic National Stockpile, in 2021, when we took over HCORE, put the supply chain work in our line, we really began to grow 
as a result of the pandemic. And I want to make sure that these capabilities that we have now, because we've invested and we've um, we've responded and Congress has funded, that we don't lose that capability just as the COVID dollars are drying up now and we're moving back to annual budgets. It would be a shame if we had to start from scratch for the next outbreak when we have these things ready-made. So I cemented them in our organization so we would not lose them. I'm trying to do my part now. I need Congress to do its part. Well, that is all of my questions. Thank you so much for coming on The Disaster Project. It was so inspiring to talk with you. I think that people will be really interested to learn more about ASPR and more about all the projects that ASPR is involved with. Thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. And um, we'll look forward to further conversations. If we can be helpful, please let us know. Music track courtesy of Pixabay and composed by Alex Zavesa. I'm your host, Larissa Unruh, and I'll see you next time on The Disaster Project. <laughs>